Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, and time watchwoman, Sheila Zelinsky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this June 1st edition of the Sheila Zelinsky Show, folks. It's with a very heavy heart that I come to you, my listeners, today with my situation. Since the first week of January, it's now June 1st, I simply have not received the financial support to meet my monthly requirements So by this Friday the 5th, if I am unable to raise $7,500, I will be forced to go off the air. In other words, Friday will be my last broadcast. It's not my intention today to do a big spiel on the work I put into my show and ministry. I don't need to do that. But the reality is I can no longer afford to go in the hole every month. I've done what the Lord has directed me to do. So now it comes down to you and it's up to you to support his work. All I know is the Lord loves a cheerful giver. If you're blessed by what I'm doing, I hope you will see to it that I do not go off the air Friday. There is a donation button at weekendvigilante.com. I will be announcing all week where I'm at, but I would need monthly support from you from here on out. So I've prayed about it. I have wrestled with this, and it is not an easy decision, but I'm leaving the ball in your court. So If you believe that I'm doing the Lord's work, then everyone who participates in keeping me on the air is going to be blessed by God, I believe. I think it's really important for people not to make an assumption that someone else is donating. I know what my podcast numbers are. I know what my listening numbers are. And the situation has me rather baffled. But anyway, I'm leaving that with you. And again, at the end of day on Friday, if I do not raise $7,500... Airtime is very costly, and this is just the reality of the situation. So, I guess we'll leave it in God's hands, and I hope people do step up to the plate. And every amount helps. Every amount. So, I leave this in your hands, and I ask you to be praying for me as well. In addition to financially, please do what you can and keep me on the air. And with that said, we'll take a short break. And I will be back with Ellie Marzuli right after this short break. Ellie Marzuli, it's going to be a good show. Stick around. So what I want to talk to you about is the coming technological singularity. 
I want to talk to you about transhumanism. I want to talk to you about the coming human enhancement revolution. Today we have a very special guest, Tom Horn. We're going to talk about his book, Forbidden Gates. They are being advised by some of the top think tanks in the world. If we weren't secretly, privately ahead of the human enhancement revolution, we would fall irreparably behind. Well, what about the ethics of this? Would these people be considered humans? Would they be considered equal to us? What I want to know is why you'd let a wacko like Tom Horn come on your program to discuss transhumanism anyway. This guy's point of view is so obviously skewed by his Bible-thumping background. How could anybody take this guy seriously? Tom Horn is back in the news again at Wired Magazine, addressing the coming human enhancement revolution. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's one of the large departments of the U.S. They have set aside millions of dollars for rewriting the DNA of our soldiers. I've often told people that uh, Tom Horn is one of the more interesting uh, theological interpreters of transhumanism in the country. Very smart guy, although I'm pretty sure he's crazy. What is transhumanism? It is the idea that we are going to use technology now to create a new version of ourselves. What the transhumanists have in mind is something very fundamental, the, the basic revision of human beings. We might be creating humans that would be barely recognizable as the humans we see on the street today, and they'd be thought of as superior. It is extremely dangerous for someone to interconnect his nervous system with a machine that is relatively boundless in its limits. There are technologies that are being employed now that most people think are 100 years away. They're not. They, they exist now. It is a loss of ethics in the current sense. It is looking at human beings as fodder. We don't treat human beings as experiments. What will we become? In a few generations, where will mankind be? Will we really be human anymore? Hello, listeners, and welcome back. Folks, you're in for a real treat because my guest is the highly acclaimed author and speaker, Ellie Marzulli, author of On the Trail of the Nephilim, the Nephilim Trilogy, and the Watchers series, the latest being Watchers 8, and I'm going to get him to talk about that. I could go on all day, but without further ado, Ellie, welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Thanks for having me on, Sheila. Pleasure to be here. You know, your calendar has some very interesting pictures, some of which you took, like in Peru, these Peruvian megalithic stones, which vary in weight from, what, 120 tons plus. And one of the things that always begs the question when you look at these megalithic structures is, how do you create these bizarre angles and shapes that would make Newton salivate with a copper chisel? <laughs> You know, we were we were discussing that when I say we, uh, my friend and and actually our guide down there the first time, first couple of times, Brian Forrester, who has been to many of these sites and introduced me um, to the sites. Of course, um, it, there's nothing like it when you're there and staring at the wall at Sacsayhuaman yourself, and 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 we realized the impossibility of what we're looking at. These sites, not only in Sacsayhuaman but in other places, like even the Great Pyramid. In Egypt, what people don't understand that each each of the limestone casing blocks are different. 
there's not a set there's not a set standard for the casing stones. They're all different. Same thing in Sac Sabomont. Every rock, every and I rock is the wrong word. Every megalithic piece of stone that is used is completely different. There's no two alike. The joints are absolutely perfect. And it begs the question, how does a culture 3,500 years ago or older in the Neolithic or even perhaps older than that cut andesite stone with copper chisels? And you can't do it. And this is what archaeologists won't. Now, I, when I say archaeologists, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. Mainstream archaeology refuses to deal with what, they're, what stares at them in the face. The bottom line is they don't know how the ancients moved 120-ton blocks, specifically in South America. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no horses there. There's no elephants or mastodons that we know of that could move this stuff. The quarry is 40 to 50 miles away in so from Sacsayhuaman and 2,000 feet lower. How did they do it? How did they cut and shape the stones? And there's all sorts of theories um, to me, it's the obvious one is some sort of levitation had to be uh, deployed. I have come to call these sites, I call them Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology, because in my opinion, that's who's responsible to do uh, for constructing these sites. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Robert Salas came in on Watchers 8 and talked about Something had happened at Maelstrom Air Force Base where he was the commander of that base. This is where these, I think it was 1967, they had about 10 to 15 intercontinental nuclear ballistic missiles in silos. And he was at the command post about 60 feet underground when a very large 60-foot UFO hovered over the base and basically switched off the missiles. What's interesting is there's a report that this happened at another base, okay? And this is where it gets really interesting, and it ties back into what we think happened at Sacsayhuaman. Now, this is conjecture on my part, but it's, it's based on the testimony of Robert Salas. Allegedly, allegedly, a 20-ton door that was, that concrete door that was on a, sort of like our track that, was, that covered this silo was just picked up and moved to the side. 20-ton door. In other words, you've got a UFO hovering over this base, and then you've got this 20-ton door, which is just picked up and moved to the side. Now, what's interesting is that is anti-gravity. Right. And that's what we think, that's what we posit had to have been the case in places like Sacsayhuaman. But here's something else to think about, Sheila. Um, there, there's two sites I want to talk about. I've never been to either of them, but Brian Forrester has. He recently shared with me a, um, a video that he took in Baalbek. Now, in Baalbek, there are, there's a stone called the Stone of the Pregnant Woman, and this thing is absolutely gargantuan. It is, weighs 1,200 to 1,400 tons, 1,200 tons. It is about 70 feet long, 16 feet wide, 14 feet in height. It is absolutely ridiculously huge, and it begs the question, how do you move stuff like this? Well, <laughs> An archaeologist underneath it recently, in the last few years, they began to dig uh, around the stone of the pregnant woman, and to their amazement, they discovered two other stones which are actually larger than the stone of the pregnant woman. Get this. When we go from Baalbek, and we realize that in Baalbek, there are granite pillars, and the granite seems to have come from Aswan, 
which is about a thousand miles away from Baalbek, which begs the question, how did they transport the, the granite? Not only that, but how did they carve the granite? Egyptologists will tell us that the Great Pyramid was built by Egyptians about 4,000 years ago, whatever, okay? Right. That's, that's basically the, the, the status quo. That's the paradigm that everyone holds to. However, and let's not even talk about how it was built. We don't even have to go there. How did they quarry the stones? How did they do it? How did they move them? How did they, we don't even have to go there. All we have to do is go to the king's chamber because above the king's chamber are these granite slabs, and these things are huge, absolutely huge, and they were quarried from Aswan. And Aswan is about... 500 miles from the site. Just show me, Mr. Zawi Hawass and other Egyptologists, just tell me how the Egyptians were able to quarry the granite stones. And that's that just goes tilt and the pinball machine game over because there's no way they did it. Because you can't cut granite with copper chisels. I mean, you just can't do it. Limestone, okay, I'll, I'll grant you the limestone thing, but you can't. And how did they move them? from the Aswan Dam up to the King's Chamber, which is two-thirds of the way up the Great Pyramid. But L.A., I mean, andesite's very hard. It's about seven on the Mohs hardness scale. So it's kind of hard to imagine how you'd make these angles and angle it in and that you can't even stick a piece of paper in between, let alone move it 50, 60, 70 miles away. You have to love these new agers that the aliens did it. The Anunnaki did it. Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods was really kind of the first book to really introduce not only the ancient alien theory, but actually he says right in his book that get this were the descendants of these galactic pioneers and the archaeological discoveries prove it and so the biblical narrative is always thrown out though i get a kick out of how the bible talks about this yet these guys they'll just throw out whatever because you know the aliens did it but people yuck that up don't they well this is what's at stake here sheila um the the ancient astronaut ancient alien crowd that that show on the history channel has been going at least seven years um, they're doing this huge contact in the desert conference that's coming up um, in the next couple of weeks. I think it's actually um, very soon, maybe even this weekend, contact in the desert. Um, it's sold out. Thousands of people will be there. Chris Putman stated in our Watcher 7 that more people in the UK believe in, in ET than they do in God. And, I mean, look, Von Daniken's book, Chariots of the God, changed my life when I first read it as a teenager. It changed my life. I wasn't a Christian then, and I believed everything that he was saying. I've since gone to places like the Nazca Lines and realized that extraterrestrials more than likely had nothing to do with any of this stuff. But this is what's being promulgated um, constantly. Uh, the works of Von Daniken, uh, Zechariah Sechin, and others are trying to tell us that somehow we were seated here and that life began from the extraterrestrial. In fact, when when Ben Stein sits down with Richard Dawkins in his, which I would call a classic movie, a must-see movie, uh, Expelled No Intelligence Allowed, when Stein sits down with Dawkins and just says a very simple question, where did life come from? Where did this first self-replicating molecule, how did it start? And of course, Dawkins has no idea, nor does anyone else, and he's right about that. No one knows really how any of this began. But Dawkins then presents his theory, which of course is panspermia. And panspermia is the idea that we were seated here by extraterrestrials. And these extraterrestrials themselves would have had to 
uh, risen to a very high state of civilization through some sort of Darwinian process, but a circular reasoning because where did they come from? And of course, he doesn't know. The Bible, which I refer to as the guidebook of the supernatural, tells us very specifically that all things were created by Yeshua. It says the word was with God and the word was, was, was God. The word was God and the word was with God. All things were created by him and nothing that was made was made without him. So we know from the biblical narrative that he created everything. He spoke everything into existence. Now that points back to the supernatural, as does places, in my opinion, like Sacsayhuaman, the Great Pyramid, like many of the sites that we see ar around the globe. Um, and, and there's only two, really, in my opinion, there's only two uh, positions a person can hold. One is that there is a supernatural, that the God of the Bible is real, that the biblical narrative is the one that is the correct one. And the other one is uh, the Zechariah and Sechin UFO stuff that we receded here by aliens, what Dawkins holds to. Uh, the reason why I hold to the biblical paradigm is, first of all, I have a personal relationship with Jesus and spirit-filled. The second, the second reason is I've got in the biblical narrative a thread of prophecy from Genesis to Revelation that tells me ahead of time, a priori, what will happen. And it's called out with great specificity, not like Nostradamus, not like Edgar Casey, not like Blossom Goodchild or any of the so-called New Age prophets. It tells me with great specificity what will happen in the latter days. And of course, I believe we're in the latter days. So while the Christian church, for the most part, sleeps, there are remnants of it which are wakening up and are awake and are talking about what is manifesting on the planet. For the most part, the church sleeps and won't engage in this conversation at all. And of course, this is what's at stake. The youth are, are already following the Pied Piper uh, of Zechariah Sitchin and Eric Von Daniken and all these other guys. And that's why the Ancient Aliens series has been on for seven years and counting. There's obviously a really, really big audience. And like you said, it's very disturbing, as Chris Putnam alluded to. More people believe in aliens than believe in God. And Tom Horn said something really stunning on my show. And he was talking about the book. And, of course, it's referenced in Exo Vaticani. It's called Childhood's End. And it actually yes. is becoming a series this year. I don't know what station's picking it up. But they're going to introduce the world to the idea and him and Steve Quill said on my show and listen to this LA Tom said what if because of course the aliens you know that that mantra is being spewed out of the Catholic Church the Vatican is going to be baptizing aliens so what if that God of the Bible was just you know he was just the bad guy Satan's really the good guy and he's going to come on the scene and the world will embrace him gee where does that sound familiar I guess the bottom line is the biblical narrative that's never been disproven Things have been prophesied that have come true over and over. We look at the last days. How do people not make this connection, do you think? Or do is it just complete deception? Well, in my opinion, it is complete deception. Um, I talk about it as the coming great deception. In the Luciferian Endgame, in my books, I've labeled it that. I first refer to it as the coming great deception, I believe, in, in the Nephilim trilogy, you know, going on 15 years ago, actually 16 years ago. In book one, I refer to it as the coming great deception. Um, there's a, a, a passage in, in 2 Thessalonians that talks about uh, the apostasy, that the falling away, the apostasy will not uh, will happen first before the Antichrist is revealed, which begs the question, and I realize this is a very controversial passage because some people say, oh no, that word really means um, 
falling away is actually the, the heart parts of the rapture. And I'm saying, I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is at all. I believe it's the apostasia in the Greek, the apostasy of falling away. And it means a deliberate leaving where people are leaving the faith, a, a Christian worldview. And that begs the question, what event would cause something like that? And in my opinion, Sheila, the event would be mile-wide craft hovering over the several cities of the world at the same time in broad daylight and just sitting there. That's the game changer. And I receive a lot of email from people with encounters and all sorts of stuff. And this woman wrote me about, uh, she saw a, a bunch of UFOs, several of them, flying in the sky. And she writes, I was, she's a Christian, I was speechless. That's what she writes to me. Mm -hmm. I was speechless. I sat there basically mesmerized at what I was looking at. And, and I talked about this on the show, the idea that when we encounter something like this, it is mesmerizing. You will become speechless unless we know what we're looking at a priori. Before it happens, we, most people, will be deceived. Look, if this isn't the apostasy, then I don't know what is. This is what's manifesting full-blown at the present time. Now, there are Marian apparitions appearing also, but not, not even remotely close to the amount of UFOs that we're actually seeing, which are well over a 1,000 a month being reported from all over the globe. This is alarming, Sheila. And when, when one of these craft or several of these craft just appear, it all bets are off. The church doesn't understand what they face. And this is why shows like Ancient Aliens continue over and over and over again. And this is why people are looking at UFOs. Everyone knows, we all agree that the phenomenon is real, is burgeoning, it's not going away, a term I've used and coined. Real burgeoning and not going away. We all agree on that. We only disagree as to the source of it. Are they from you know, Zeta Reticuli or the planet Zebo or whatever? Or are they interdimensional beings? And look, I present now, I presented at a UPARS conference. I'm presenting at a, uh, in, in July, I'll, I'll be at uh, CERO, another UFO group. And I do it in a way that's non-religious. I, I quote from people like Zechariah Sechin, but then I, I also quote from people like Jacques Vallée uh, in his book, Messengers of Deception, and, and people like J. Allen Hynek and others, the, the sort of the pioneers of ufology who are stating, wait a minute, this phenomenon that we're looking at is, is closer to the stuff that we read about with demons than it is actually extraterrestrials. And so I, I present and I just I just say, look, there's two ways of looking at this. One, they're extraterrestrial, but the other side of the aisle, the of course, this, the side that I embrace, is that these are non-extraterrestrial entities. They are, in fact, interdimensional entities. They are coming in from another dimension. Look, even even it's, it's incredible, Graham. Uh, Graham Hancock, his book is Supernatural. You know, it's like 500 pages. He's doing all this hiawasi. He's going in to another dimension, all this stuff, um, you know, mind-altering drugs under the leadership of a shaman in South America, taking this very potent hallucinogenic hiawasa. And at the end of the book, he just says, whatever these entities are, they seem to be overly concerned with our reproductive capabilities. Why do they want to mate with us? Again, Shiva, it, it ties right back into the days of Noah, where we know in Genesis 6, 
these fallen angels came, they took wives, they married them, they went into them in the biblical sense, and the progeny of this unholy union between the fallen angelic host of heaven and the women of earth were the Nephilim. And Yeshua, Jesus, warns us that in the latter days it'll be like the days of Noah before he returns. It points back to Genesis 6. That's what's going on. That's what my books are about. The Watchers series are about. We believe that we're in the last of the last days, and this stuff is manifesting in ways that we've never seen. Well, things are accelerating in terms of manifestation. And let's take into account Luke 21, 26, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. It's really important that people get this right now, folks. When you have one or several mile-long crafts hoovering over the sky, I mean, like you said again, that's really a setup for being absolutely mesmerized indeed. LA, whether it's Belbeck, the Great Stones in France, Stonehenge, Avebury, Mardenhenge, also in Wiltshire. I think that's probably Europe's largest prehistoric structure. It's what, 11 hectares or something? It's glaringly obvious to me that we're looking here at angel tech because you'd be hard pressed to duplicate all these megalithic structures even if they were, let's say, what people call aliens, are they missing the part where there was giants before and after the flood? Now, what's interesting to me is that Chris, speaking of Chris Putnam, just got back from uh, a trip to Arizona with Tom, and they did find Native American petroglyphs, talked to the chiefs, and what's always interesting is, you and I have talked about this, my family being Blackfoot, in the histories or this Blackfoot scrolls, they talk about these giants and some of them were these red-headed giants now when you see these ancient carvings petroglyphs and they have portals and right next to them are these big six-digit beings while moses is writing the torah these natives are building cliffs to get away from something that something doesn't jive with me with that well look i've, I've been to many of these sites i mean i've actually seen the petroglyphs i've, I've got photographs of them uh, in the book, there's one very interesting one uh, in On the Trail of Nephilim 2 where it shows this little guy with a spear coming up against a six-fingered giant. I mean, it's right on the rock wall. There it is. It's a petroglyph. But, you know, I, I've sat down, and it, all of this is, is recorded in Armour Trail of Nephilim Volume 1, Armour Trail of Nephilim Volume 2. And it all, you know, I've been talking to um, uh, Native American elders and chiefs and all sorts of stuff, um, and that's why it, it's in the books um, what we what we hear about, what we see uh, in the oral tradition, uh, is this ongoing relationship with these very tall, red-haired, six-fingered giant cannibals that were all over the Americas. And on the trail of a Nephilim volume two, which was groundbreaking, I was on the History Channel show in search of a lost giants by the Vieira brothers. Right. They basically took my picture, which I discovered in the in the Catalina archives. And Shelly, you got to understand, this is my work. This is my discovery. I was the guy that that chartered a private plane, flew out to Catalina, spent a thousand dollars donation to the Catalina Museum, and be able to access the archives, which I was able to access. Now, the reason why I did this is because I was alerted to a cache of records, journals, pictures, photographs that were discovered, and it took me eight months to negotiate this, and I finally was able to go, and I spent ten hours. In the archives, I poured over everything which had been uh, sort of overlooked by other researchers. What I mean by that, I was the first researcher to discover this 
and, and analyze some of the photographs. Now, Ralph Glidden was employed by the High Museum. The High Museum was later gobbled up by the Smithsonian. Glidden was employed by them between 1919 and 1921. He was employed by the High Museum to go out over Catalina Island. Catalina Island is about 27 miles outside of Los Angeles, part of the Channel Islands, which extend from San Diego northward up to Santa Barbara, called the Channel Islands. And he conducted very primitive archaeological digs in and around that time. In some ways, he's a little more than a grave robber. Okay, I get that. The Vieira brothers went through this whole extraordinary lens to paint him as a uh, disreputable guy who really wasn't an archaeologist at all. He was a little more than a grave robber. Okay, I get all that. I understand all that. But the guy had a camera, and he took pictures. And guess what? I found three pictures which are absolutely anomalous. One, uh, which, has, which shows a giant just under nine feet with six fingers. Okay. There it is. Now, no one else saw that because they're not going in there looking for six-fingered skeletons because they know nothing about the Nephilim, with all due respect. I found elongated skulls there, which ties back into our research in Peru, and yet Catalina is thousands of miles away from Peru, and yet we see the same elongated skulls that are, that are recorded and that I've actually handled in Peru in the Catalina Island cache of records by Ralph Glidden. But the pay dirt and the one we had analyzed shows Ralph Glidden standing in a recently excavated gravesite, and in front of him is a very large skeleton. When I saw that, I just went, oh, you've got to be kidding. I had three different researchers with computer programs analyze the skeleton, all right? All of them put it at just under nine feet. So, I mean, this is a giant a nine-footer is a very large guy. Three different people did this. Guess what? I returned to Catalina about a month ago, and the Ralph Gooden Museum ex exhibit has been, has been greatly reduced to make room for other exhibits. That's the way the museums work. They're constantly turning out new exhibits so the public will keep coming back. That's how they you know, stay in business, as it were. So the Glidden, the Glidden exhibit was a very small exhibit, and it showed all these different skeletal uh, remains that Glidden had uh, uncovered. What was interesting, Sheila, is the picture that I discovered in the archives, which was not being displayed in the museum, was now being displayed. It was blown up and being displayed on the wall. Guess what, Sheila? The giant at the feet of Glidden was cropped out of the picture. Wow. It was no longer in the picture. And I pointed this out to the, the assistant curator, because Borgina um, is no longer with the museum. And I said, what happened to the giant? And I said, you guys cropped out the picture. And all she could tell me was, well, we didn't want to offend any Native Americans. And I looked at her and I said, look all around you. All you see is Glidden holding skulls from Native Americans. This is the one picture... <laughs> that we don't believe is Native American. And it points back to the biblical Nephilim. And of course, <clears throat> I was on the History Channels in search of a lost giants with the Vieira brothers, and it made it look, their series made it look like they had discovered that picture. And of course, I was greatly offended by this because I gave it to Vieira. Uh, I didn't know he was contracted by a, a production company that later became the show. And so everything, you know, we made up and everything was cool. But even even in the History Channel, they still made it look like the Vieira brothers discovered that photograph. That's my intellectual property, Sheila. Yeah. I yeah. was the guy that, that did the work. I was the guy that went out there on a hunch, and I discovered those photographs. And I had them analyzed. No one else has done that. 
Why? Look, I'm not an archaeologist. I work with several archaeologists. I work with anthropologists because they have the degrees I don't. And I can work with them. But why aren't they doing the work? You know, I mean, these guys go out there. They had access to this stuff. No, and all they did is they put the photographs in little folders and labeled it, you know, San Miguel's, Catalina, this and that. Okay, guys, you did a great job of that, but no one did any really hardcore research. No one took the photographs and said, wait a minute, we've got a skeleton here that looks anomalous. No one's done that. And look, I've got limited funding. I'm just one guy. And there's other photographs which we are now in the process of enlarging, blowing up, looking at and analyzing them because they are elongated skull shield and they shouldn't be there. And yet they are. I guess my struggle with all of this is that, you know, again, they always control the narrative. For example, you refer to an 1842 journal and the lithograph and the mummified elongated baby skull. They'll say, oh, it's cradle headboarding or they'll throw in the Darwinian paradigm too. It's like they just want to hold people in this intellectual bondage. And one of the things I always love that Kent Hovind always said is, who bought the gas to run this machine? Something has to prompt a Big Bang. And yet the guys over at CERN are now recreating the Big Bang. For generations, these guys have crossed the threshold and taken all this genetic DNA manipulation to a frightening new level. They've really crossed that line of, well, look at the transhuman agenda. Trying to become immortal is one of the biggest pagan bloodthirsty agendas out there. Now, Tim Alberino just got back from Peru, and one of the stunning things he found there is that they were actually repositioning antediluvian structures in with the modern structures. They get down there, there's these armed guards with bullhorns. You're not literally allowed to touch the stones. What is up with that? Well, that he's talking about Puma Punku and Tiwanaku. It was there uh, two years ago. Um, I have not written about it yet. We touched a little bit about it in Watchers 8. Uh, Alberino's right about what he what he was seeing, specifically at Tiwanaku. Um, they began to reconstruct some of what was there. They, they were told to stop doing it because they were screwing everything up. Uh, and you're right. There are guards um, that are there. There's a way of getting around that, and I won't tell you how we did it, but we, we got around it. And Puma Punku, we went to places that the public is not allowed to go to. And what we saw there was absolutely stunning. Um, I have not written about it yet, but I have the information. I've got the pictures of it. This was a huge machine. It was megalithic. Um, but like many of these sites, it has been raided over the centuries. And many of these stones were were drilled in modernity, specifically in Puma Punku, when they were building the railroad. And many of the stones were broken up and used as railroad bedding material, if you can even believe that. So, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. There's an armed guard posted uh, along, along the one gate. But see, when you walk around the area, which I've done and spent several days there, no one knows what this thing looked like. It's been thrown down. We found one gate for lack of a better word. Uh, and Sheila, again, this is andesite stone, and this thing has been carved with some sort of machine tool. There's no way you can do this with a chisel, and it's duplicated on both sides. It was some sort of a machine that was in place. At least that's what we think it is, and we think, it, of course, it's, it's pre-flood. The knowledge is all control, and people don't understand this, that the Darwinian paradigm is what has held sacrosanct in both academia and, of course, the scientific community. And they have an axe to grind. 
And anything that points to the supernatural is immediately dealt with. Watch Ben Stein's movie if you don't believe me. Expelled. I mean, that's what the whole thing's about. No intelligence allowed. The university system controls the information. For Absolutely. instance, they're talking. They're talking about. Oh, you know, we've we've examined thousands of mummies in per, in in Peru, and you know, and they're drinking uh, beer and making you know and planting maize and corn and all this stuff. Well, has anyone done any freaking DNA testing? The answer to that is basically no. We're trying to do the DNA testing. Everything is controlled. It's all controlled. For instance, they recently they found the skeletons of what may be a giant. Ooh, and that was posted. You know, they found it in some, I forget where it was, over in Europe someplace, right? Well, you know, Sheila, all they've got to do is measure the femur bone. This can take approximately three minutes to do. And you know that they've done that, but they won't release the information because it probably is a real giant and it has nothing to do with the pituitary thing and the doggone thing is probably over nine feet tall. All they've got to do is measure the femur bone and put that into an equation and you can tell very quickly how big this guy really was. That's all they have to do, but they won't share the information. Just like the 1842 lithograph where they where this whole debate's going on between the cradle headboarding and the genetic manipulation by an outside agency. We don't know until we get the DNA. This is why we are on the trail. Uh, we're getting closer, but we still don't have permission from the Peruvian authorities to go down and extract the DNA. The moment we get that, we will do that. In the meantime, um, I've got other sites in North America, which we are working on with archaeologists, and I, I won't say any more about that. We're, we've got several active sites, which we are working on now, and we're hoping to, quote unquote, uncover something. And when we do, then we'll let you know. Well, it's really interesting how you have these headlines. Giant human jawbone, baffles scientists, Taiwanese fishermen catch this massive, it would have been a 17 foot something. I mean, how do these people explain these 12 foot, 17 foot skeletons? A 290 million year old human footprint has researchers scratching their heads. Well, yeah, scratching their heads, baffling, that always sort of seems synonymous. But when you look at the Aztecs, the Incas, the Mayans, you know, they always want to praise these guys as they were such nice no they were bloodthirsty pagan death cults really weren't they well they absolutely they were on um, places like chichen itza where fifty thousand people were ritualistically slaughtered on top of the pyramid i mean this is very deliberate it also begs the question where does this pyramid come from once again it's nephilim architecture fallen angel technology in my opinion that uh, enables this this culture to uh construct these sites it's stunning to me that apart L.A. from the terrible results of the unsanctioned, unholy interbreeding between the fallen angels and the humans, the watchers bringing men knowledge, really, Enoch relates something very stunning. And I wonder if some of these guys wouldn't do themselves a favor from the ancient aliens and read the book of Enoch. Enoch relates the individual names and skills attributed to each of these players. It's either David or Mark Flynn talk about this besides metallurgy and cosmology and astrology and pharmacia. We're talking about enchantments and root cuttings, resolving of enchantments, astrology, constellations, the knowledge of the clouds, the signs of the earth, the signs of the sun, the moon. I mean, this is obviously pretty clear who's developed this technology and yet they just will not acknowledge this. No, and, and, and they don't, because the moment they get into the supernatural, 
Uh, now what? And, and, and what supernatural paradigm are we going to, to believe? Which one are we going to hold uh, that actually is the truth? And of course, being a Christian, uh, being spirit-filled, we believe in the teachings of Yeshua. We believe uh, in, in the teachings of the entire Bible, uh, in the prophetic thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And, and we believe that we are in the last days, and we are in the days of Noah. It'll be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man returns, and we're seeing that, although it's slightly different than it was in the days of Noah. It's, this, it's similar to the days of Noah. <clears throat> the biblical narrative uh, shows us that there is a supernatural. Extra-biblical books like the Book of Enoch certainly tell us that something is going on. There's a quid pro quo when the fallen angel, angelic host come to earth. They were giving this knowledge. And here's something interesting. Uh, when I was in uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico, and then later on, several years later, wound up in uh, Corral, this very ancient city in Peru, which not many people know about. It's the oldest city in the Americas. It's over 5,000 years old. It's the oldest city in the Americas. And it's got the whole pyramidal structures that we see. My first question is, where did this come from? And why does it look so similar to Teotihuacan in Mexico, which happens a couple thousand years later? Where does the knowledge come from? And this ties in with your question. It's all fallen angel technology, in my opinion. This is where it's coming from. These guys want to be worshipped. They come down. They set up a kingdom, their own kingdom. They're worshipped as gods. Um, the movie 10,000 BC actually gets it right, in my opinion. It really does. It gets it right, except it doesn't show enough of the supernatural. It shows that this one guy, this is where it strays. This one guy, you know, they're building a pyramid and they're using mastodons to haul the bricks and all this other stuff. They get it on some level. This guy is being treated as a god. They're right. But it's a fallen angel, in my opinion, that sets up shop and then <clears throat> teaches the culture all the all the uh, the grueling detail about human sacrifice in all of these sites that I've been to, corral. My first question to the god: evidence of human sacrifice. He looked at me nervously and said, "Yes, we found it." Same thing in Teotihuacan, human sacrifice. Same thing in Chichen Itza. It's everywhere. It's in the Ohio Circle Mound in Newark, Ohio. Human sacrifice, altars. It's always the same thing. The Stonehenge, it's really interesting. They supposedly did a lot of excavation years back in the around the 1950s, and they found unbelievable amounts of decomposed bodies that they think the way they were butchered. I mean, they can tell some things now with DNA. You know, you see all these circular oval shaped placements of these henges, I guess hence the words henge, but all these sacrificial skeletons excavated in and around these henges, the druids, this pagan bloodthirsty, similar to the Incas, the Mayans, and the Aztecs, always having these very sacrificial rituals around these stone monolithic structures. What's your theory on what's going on there? Well, I mean, it, the life is in the blood. We know that. And the ritualistic sacrifices open the portals. That's what it is. Ritualistic sacrifices are going on now. You mentioned the Book of Enoch. And in the Book of Enoch, it talks about uh, one of the angels, I, I think it's Baraquil, that shows how to kill the embryo in the womb. That's the first abortion. And where does it come from? It comes from the fallen angelic host of heaven. There are one billion, with a B, abortions on the planet Yes, uh, from Roe v. Wade. Millions of them, well over 60 million of them now in this country alone. This serves as an opening of the gateway. This serves as an opening of a demonic. 
I blogged about uh, the whole Charlie Charlie Ouija board nonsense going on with the youth today. And this is the doctrine of demons. This is exactly where we are. In, in the latter times, uh, they will depart from the faith and give heed to the doctrine of demons. This is exactly where we are. Yes. This is exactly where we are. I mean, here's a signpost, wake up church, you know, Charlie, Charlie. And I, I blogged two things on it because, and, and actually it, it, my post has not gone viral, but we've had well over 8,000 hits just from one and like and close to 9,000 hits uh, from the other. This is an ongoing uh, deal. People are waking up and this is, this is cutting edge stuff. But look, uh, the, the occult is alive and well. These entities engage in ritualistic blood sacrifice because this is where the power is from. Uh, I was just at America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire. I do a little thing called Acceleration TV. Part one was aired last week on our trip to Stonehenge. Well, we haven't even discussed yet the sacrificial table, which is in America's Stonehenge, which is still there intact. And this thing weighs a lot. It, it's probably you know, two or three tons. Uh, but there's other stones, megalithic stones there, which are six, seven, nine tons, which are used in the construction of America's Stonehenge. What's interesting about the sacrificial table, there is a, a, uh, a trough all around the table, which allows the blood to be collected from the table and then poured off the slab into a, into a collection bowl. We don't know where the collection bowl is, but there's th that channel runs all around the rock and then and comes out at the bottom of the rock where that would be, you, you would collect the blood of the victim. And we're not talking about deer or antelope or, you know, nice little fuzzy bunny rabbits. This is all human sacrifice. And of course, this is very controversial uh, because this is in New Hampshire. And uh, what's interesting about this, Sheila, this site may date f back 4,000 years to the time of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians are a seafaring people and are the descendants of the Canaanites, and the Canaanites are a Nephilim tribe. So it all goes back to the idea of Mount Hermon. What's interesting, you know, we talked about this a little earlier, Baalbek, one of those huge sites in Lebanon. What most people don't understand, and this is why you've got to be on the site. Brian was there, and we talked yesterday on Skype. I have never been there, but I was able to pick his brain as it were. And what's interesting is when you're at Baalbek, guess what you can see from standing in Baalbek? Mount Hermon. You wow. can see it. In, yeah, I didn't know that. You can see it in the distance. It's only 47 and a half miles away, Baalbek, from Mount Hormone. And of course, Mount Hermon is where the, the fallen angel, the 200 watcher angels descended in the days of Jared on Mount Hermon. And those were the guys that started all the mischief, as Chuck Messler likes to call it, <laughs> way back in Genesis 6. It's all connected. Well, it's just really interesting mountains, whether it's Mount Sinai, Olives, Mount Hermon. There's always a very interesting connection with interdimensional gateways and stairways and ascending and descending, whether it's Jacob's Ladder or Elijah and the Whirlwind and many other accounts, it would almost seem like there's a reoccurring theme here. They're always located on or near these mountains. Take Mount Graham, for instance. The Native Americans believe that that is one of the most sacred mountains in the indigenous arena. And guess what? They themselves know that is a stargate. You know, you have to connect some dots that there has to be some kind of interdimensional portals that are significant with these mountain areas, aren't there? Well, ab absolutely. I'm um this this is ongoing. Portals are opened up deliberately 
through ritualistic blood sacrifice. Um, we know that. I mean, occultists use it now. Nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed in thousands of years. It's the doctrines of demons. It's it's right from the pit of hell. Hell's kitchen, as Russ Dizdar likes to call it. It's exactly what we're looking at. All these high places, for instance, in America, Stonehenge, and, and I'm just going to use this because I was just there about three weeks ago, Sheila. <clears throat> and this is what's so important about being boots on the ground. Now, with all due respect to Brian, you know, Brian has been to Baalbek, but I've been to America, Stonehenge, and he's never been there. Nah, 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 nah. But I'd much, <laughs> I'd much rather trade and go to Baalbek. But here's the deal. I'm, I'm at America Stonehenge. I've seen pictures of it. I've written about it, but I was never there. And my wife and I walk in to, to the site, and guess what? It's in a housing development. Now, not like, you know, houses packed together. The houses are like on two-acre, five-acre, 10-acre parcels. And the, the Stone family, the grandfather, purchased um, all 120 acres or whatever it is for America Stonehenge and protected the site. But as you're going into the site, I realize immediately we're ascending. Uh-oh, we're ascending. And we're ascending to what I believe is going to be a high place. Sure enough, America Stonehenge is built on a high place. It's the highest part of, of this one area. It's built on, on like a small hilltop or a small mountaintop. Earlier, when the site was constructed 4,000 years ago, and they've had geologists uh, come to the site and look and dig down into the earth, there were no trees there. It was a meadow. So you had this whole 360 panoramic view of the mountains around you, and the mountains in the distance, Sheila, undulate like the back of a snake. Mm, isn't that interesting? Mm. And guess what? When you stand there at America Stonehenge in the distance, that's where the megaliths, the standing stones are put in. And you wouldn't be able to see that 150 years ago because it was all grown up. And this was this is why it's all modern research. And it's all just recently really been uncovered. And they, they've cleared sections of the forest away to give you an idea of what the hill used to look like 4,000 years ago when these standing stones were there. And of course, all this right there in America Stonehenge is that slab, that sacrificial table where we believe human sacrifice took place. These are high places, demonically charged high places. And this is just one of many. And just like these sites, just like in Newark, Ohio, where I've been, and I'll be back there, Nephilim Mounts Conference, September 12th, Gary Stearman, Russ Dizdar, Chief Joseph Riverwind, Fritz Zimmerman, and L.A. Marzulli. Ten hours, just jam-packed information. Get your tickets early, folks. I think it's going to get sold out. But at all these places, Sheila, we find remains of human sacrifices everywhere from Teotihuacan to Tiwanaku, Pumapunku. It's all there. Human sacrifice is, is the one common denominator in all these ancient sites whether it's Helena Blavatsky, whether it's Alice Bailey and her 24 occultic volumes, they all have one thing in common. Well, I guess two things. The fact that they are obsessed with these entities. And the second thing is blood sacrifice. When you really get into researching these people, this is, again, a bloodthirsty pagan death cult to these Satanists. And yet people don't make the connection of, think about Joshua and Caleb and the Israelites and the just the unsanctioned entities in the promised land there's 12 footers that are at least alluded to correct well you're speaking of og or og, og yeah and that's the you know with, with the last of the raphaim gilgal raphaim once again 47 and a half miles from the line 
that traces from America Stonehenge, intersects its center chilothon in England Stonehenge, and winds up going into Beirut. But we extend the line further. We realize that it goes very close to Mount Hermon, and it's 47 and a half miles from Baalbek in the north and 47 and a half miles from Gilgal Raphaim in the south. Raphaim, Rafa, uh, the dead. Raphaim were a Nephilim tribe. Og, the king of Bashan, last of the Raphaim giants, the Nephilim. Um, this is what we're looking at. It's all in the biblical narrative. And it all points to the same thing. And it goes back to Genesis 3. And unless we understand Genesis 3, we'll never understand Genesis 6. Genesis 3 tells us that there's going to be a seed war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then we see that manifested in Genesis 6. And it continues into modernity, into the present day. And this is why the two, there's a connectivity between the research that we do in the UFO field and what we do in the ancient archaeological sites that we visit. We're looking at genetic manipulation with these large elongated skulls. We're looking at genetic manipulation when we see the large skeleton that I discovered at the Catalina Museum that was a giant almost nine feet tall. We read about these giants being uncovered all through the Americas, and yet the bones of the giants somehow just disappear, that they're gathered up by the Smithsonian never to be seen again. And anyone who talks about it is just laughed at in academia. This is why we're on trail, Sheila. And what do you do when you find a photograph like that? Well, you just crop the photograph and you show the public only Ralph Glidden standing in a recently excavated grave, but you crop the picture so the public doesn't get to see the giant in front of him. And that is disingenuous, and there's a reason for it, because the Darwinian paradigm is what's upheld in the scientific community and academia. No intelligence allowed, as Ben Stein would say, and anything that points to the supernatural is immediately dealt with. You just said Darwinian. Charles Darwin died in 1882, so I often wonder, L.A., if he had it been around in April of 53 in the scientific paper where Watson and Cricks presented the structure of the DNA helix, the molecule that carries the genetic information from one generation to the other. If good old origin, a species guru might have changed his tune. It's funny you mentioned the academia there because I had a brilliant geologist and archaeologist. And one of the things that's so fascinating when he talked to the higher ups about these six fingered hands and 12 foot skeletons, he lost his job. So essentially, if you even breathe a word about creation, you're out of there, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Again, the Darwinian paradigm is upheld at all costs. That's how every that's how the entire planet is run. People don't understand this. But the university systems and, and academia, uh, the scientific community, they're all in lockstep with each other. I call it intellectual fascism. I mean, you can't think for yourself. And in some ways, I'm glad I didn't go through the whole process to become an archaeologist or an anthropologist because you're indoctrinated with this nonsense. I mean, I've got a book, which my friend Jack Burton gave me. It's sort of Archaeology 101. And in that, uh, right away, he deals with, the author of this book deals with the fact that, oh, all, all the skeletons and, you know, the idea that the giants and, and that Native Americans didn't build these sites. Oh, these are racist theories uh, that were all disproven at the turn of the last century. Oh, really? Says who? Says who? And when you sit down with the Native Americans, they'll tell you that we didn't build the Circle Mound. We didn't build the Octagon Mound in Ohio. We didn't do this stuff. We don't think we even built Cahokia. Okay? Uh, certain tribes just won't take credit for it. They say it was here when we got here. That's what they'll tell us. And so 
you know, Native Americans, with all due respect, didn't have uh, the type of mathematical knowledge that would take to construct the circle mound in Ohio or, or the octagon mound in Ohio. They didn't do this stuff. This is why the, the testimony of, of my friend Chief Joseph Riverwind is so is so incredible because he just comes on the record and says, look, we didn't do this. So it's funny how um, I'm a racist if I say that Native Americans didn't build this, but somehow the archaeologists aren't a racist by not believing the oral tradition that Native Americans tell us. I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways, folks. Whether it's Native Americans or whether it's the Spanish priests at Oromuru, you know, they alleged to, there was an active portal. There was writings. We're talking thousands of years ago, well-known historical oral traditions about these doorways, these ancient doorways. You know, Devil's Gate is a good example. Look at the Anasazi. You don't go and carve a portal next to a six-fingered giant with another reptilian. I mean, people just don't make that connection, do they? Let's springboard really quickly in the waning moments into tell us all about your newest part project watchers nine and what people can do to get behind it well i really appreciate that um you can go to the blog lamarzuli.wordpress.com and if you want to contribute uh we're asking for donations we lost four of our major vendors last year uh dr stan monteith passed away in radio liberty uh Stearman and bob ulrich left prophecy in the news um, and started their own ministry prophecy watchers and uh, we went with them uh, we believe in what they're doing and, but we lost um, the vendor of Prophecy of the News, um, which was considerable to us. Uh, Southwest Radio Church is another ministry which will no longer air our programs, even though we recorded about six programs with Noah Hutchings. Uh, they will not air those programs. There's been a coup over there. And I don't mind saying this because people need to understand what's going on. Uh, people have a right to know. They're not, in my opinion, being forthright, and they need to do some investigation. Why was Noah Hutchings fired? Why won't they air the programs? Unfortunately, with Sid Roth, we were on that program. We sold well over 12,000 copies of Amitrail and Nephilim 1, combined with the Watcher 6. Huge program. In fact, the half-hour program on that, on Sid Roth, has netted 1.3, over 1.3 million downloads. That's unbelievable. So um, they changed production managers. For whatever reason, they're not interested in our material anymore. That's fine. I mean, but all I'm saying is we lost four of our vendors last year for different reasons. They just don't want to cover our stuff anymore, which is fine. They can do that. I get it. Um, they, they're going in another direction, and that they're certainly free to do that. And Watchers 8, we spent upwards of $30,000 on, and we it has not monetized yet for us. So we're asking for donations to help with Watchers 9. Uh, when, you, when you contribute, uh, you'll get a Watchers 9 plus a free book, further evidence. So um, we're not asking for freebies. We're going to give you something in return once we get Watchers 9 done. But that's what we're doing. We've raised just under $10,000 so far. We are in production. We are excited. Um, we are forging ahead. And we'd just like to thank uh, Gary Stearman and Bob Ulrich of Prophecy Watchers who are supporting us. Uh, as well as ministries like like yours, Sheila. Thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. And I know, you know, like I said, it's aliens, Anunnaki, it's everything but the biblical narrative. And I, young children, 13-year-old children are interested in this stuff. Kids that wouldn't otherwise be interested in the Bible are very fascinated with Genesis 6 giants. And so I think it's really important to get behind things like this. And certainly, I know my listeners will be supporting you. And LA, I really appreciate your time coming on the show today. 
Well, thank you so much, Sheila. I'd love to do it again. You're one of, uh, you're just, I, I love I love your interview style. You're really knowledgeable. It's just great talking with you because it's a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for that, Ellie. God bless you. Folks, that was Ellie Marzuli from lamarzuli.net. The information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. We have the amazing one and only Augusto Prez stopping by tomorrow to talk about the conference and a very timely word to share with our listeners. It's going to be a great week, folks. And again, we'll see if we can keep this program on the air. Thank you so much for that, folks. Good night and God bless.